The talk this evening is about compassion and wisdom, contemplations on compassion and wisdom. And this is the theme of our retreat here together. Uh, These two qualities of our hearts and minds that can come together and really make us full human beings. One of the most beautiful feelings a person can have experience, as probably each of you know in your own ways, is a feeling of unconditional care, unconditional compassion for, uh, for other beings. And sometimes we can even feel this for beings who have uh, hurt us when we see that sometimes we see they're just hurting themselves too. So unconditional compassion is not the compassion we have just for those people that we can feel open to and uh, people who have, been, who have been kind to us, but also to people who are perpetrators of, um, of violence and of hurt. Because we know when we look truthfully in ourselves, what we find out is Bonnie has been mentioning a few times that we're all perpetrators of it. When we sit and watch our own hearts and minds, we realize, well, this, what I judge outside of myself, is in here too. And so, you know, there's some kind of a connection and there's some kind of feeling of we can understand that because we see it in our own hearts. So it's our genuine caring to connect with that suffering of another person because we know it in ourselves as well. And there's this awareness that really is the the true compassionate part. The awareness is wanting or uh, aspiring to help that person to alleviate their suffering, to be relieved of their burden somehow. So compassion isn't just opening to the suffering of another being. There's another step that is taken, and that step is to do what we can to alleviate to unburden, to help that person in some way, even if it's just caring for that person, even if it's just still loving that person, even though we've been hurt somehow. So it becomes even more beautiful and sometimes rare for us in our Western society to care for ourselves, to have this compassion for ourselves, because we're used to as someone mentioned and was agreed upon in one of my uh, groups, is that in our society and in many societies, our, our, it's been inculcated in us to just give all the time, to give to others, to be of help to others. And we don't often think, or may, maybe not often enough, of ourselves that we can bring that care and that attention and that love to ourselves. Actually, what we are doing here in this retreat uh, during these days is a really precious kind of care, you know, for us to be able to bring that kind of connection to the difficult places that show up inside of ourselves. Um, When when I feel uh, painful experiences of aversion, of not liking myself or others, of um, feeling a sense of grieving or loss or um, any of those ways that are painful to us, it's almost like it's, it's calling out to us to say, pay attention, pay attention, can you please touch me with your, your hands, your heart of connection? Because that's what I'm, I'm shouting out for. That's why it's so loud sometimes. Can you please touch me with some care? And maybe we want others to do it, but really, aren't we asking ourselves to do it for ourselves, to bring that kind of connection and care to ourselves? And that's what we do in a, in a place like this. That's why it really takes so much, it takes so much effort in a way. Because we're not used to going this way, we're used to just doing it, our attention is that way, outside of ourselves. Like I told you in my last Dhamma talk, how Upandita would say, 
to some of the people in Burma, it's like you're like the lions facing outwards, not inwards. But when people come to this meditation retreat, they're facing inwards, really looking at oneself. So in preparing this talk um, a few months ago, I was just going online like we do nowadays and seeing who's got a new talk on compassion, you know, another different idea that I can bring to it. And I get inspired by what other people say um, about it. And so not just, you know, these great people online um, that are some even scientists or in the medical field, but... um, I was telling a story once, it just came out of nowhere, that I remembered a story of my, my grandchild. Uh, she's 16 now, she just got a car, and um, I'm <laughs> so proud of her. But when she was a little girl, she came to me and said, Grandma, it, I really feel hurt, I really feel hurt. And I said, what's wrong? Did you fall down? You know, where is your hurt? And I was just kind of looking for an owie on her or something. And she said, oh, no, she said, it's right here. My heart hurts. She, maybe she had a fight with her sister or something. I forget, you know. And so then um, I said, well, what can I do? What, what can I do? And she just said something like, just hug me or just, you know, give me your love. Or I, I forget the exact words, but I just kind of put my hand on her heart. And just said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, just that little bit, just that little bit is so powerful to a human being. I mean, it doesn't really take much, does it? And so what about if we do that to ourselves when we're here? You know, when we're doing our compassion or metta practice, a lot of people like to put their hands here and just say, can I come from here? Can I touch this place? And can I come from here as I'm offering this love and compassion to others? So this talk that I was listening to was somebody I greatly admire, Dr. Stephen Porges, and he's the director of the Brain and Body Center at the University of Illinois, where his field is neural biology, and particularly in the field of really examining this polyvagal a system in the bodies and really how it works and how it affects our our whole nervous system and our emotions. And so his, his study spans the biology of the nervous system and particularly how it relates to psychological and sociological implications in, in our lives. And so what he was trying to express in this particular talk is how all of this is connected to compassion. So it was extremely interesting for me to learn about it, how it's both sociological and psychological. So he gave quite a unique description of compassion from the side of the giver of compassion and the side of the receiver of compassion. What's happening on both of those sides, biologically and sociologically, that bring up a natural sense of compassion? That's why in, in the Dharma, it said that this quality of compassion is natural for us. It's just a matter of really getting in touch with it. And the proximate cause for compassion to arise is suffering. And so that's why suffering is so connected with compassion. So on the giver's side, from the giver's side, compassion is a manifestation of our biological human need to engage and to bond with others. It's a biological and human need to bond with others, to kind of have that sense of tribal connection. And um, I feel fortunate to be raised in kind of a tribe. You know, I was raised (laughs) um, by Filipino parents, my... my, um, my mother remarried when I was a young age to another Filipino, and I felt like I was raised by a bunch of strong women, and it's kind of it is a matriarchal society, a bunch of strong women around me. Where, you know, people think I'm really soft-spoken, but 
I, I'm <laughs> watch out. <laughs> uh, so, um, in fact, I, I tell a story. It's kind of sweet when I'm when I'm teaching with Joseph Goldstein, you know. And people say this about me. I'm really sweet. They say, "Watch out! You just some of the words that come out of her mouth will shock you sometimes." <laughs> so. I'm not so proud of those words, but I, I'm, I'm proud of being straightforward and outspoken when I need to be. So this biological human need to engage and bond with others is to be able to be in a place, feel like we're in a place of safety, right? Like this feels like a place of safety. We're trying to all be on the same page. We're all here because we're doing our practice. We're not trying to do, you know, a lot of other things like recreational things. We're t- we're doing whatever we need to do as a way of our practice. Even if we bike ride or run or we swim, it's part of our practice to do that. And so, when we're together in this, we feel like this bonding that's so strong. It's such a need to do that. And why do we do that? We do that out of compassion because. When we bond, it's like we want to help another. We want to help one another. There's this just an eight kind of feeling. It's so it really very simple things. Like when we're going through the line and we see that there's not very much left in the pot. So you look behind you and you see how much can you take to make enough left over for the ones behind you, right? I mean, that's what we do. Or somebody's um, just walking a ways away, we know we're a little bit late, but we still hold the door open for them and say, I care about you. It's a way of saying, I care about you. We're in this together. And so it's a manifestation of that caring for one another, that bonding we have, because it's so important to be in a place of safety and a place of protection. It's like we're protecting one another so in the Dhamma, or the Dharma, compassion is the quivering of the heart to alleviate suffering. So we approach to help. We, action, we actually take an action to help. So uh, one of uh, um, our, the great bhikkhus of our time, um, bhikkhu Analyo, who's started to do some translations of um, the four foundations of mindfulness and the... the um, connection of uh, compassion and emptiness and I was just reading his book on compassion and emptiness and his words of wisdom and he really pointed out which I really have to start changing my Dharma talks to make sure that compassion is not only the connection with suffering but really it highlights our need to alleviate suffering not just to connect with it but to, to make the move to make the, say the words, to take the action, even if it's just putting a hand on, on a person, to alleviate their suffering, to show care for one another. So that's, that is really the highlighting part of compassion. So that's on the giver's side. And on the receiver's side, compassion is a component of our biological quest for safety in the proximity of others. So on the receiver side, we sense the compassion of others around us, so we connect with them. Our friends are people we know that will really see us. You know, like somebody uh, today read a poem to me, and so she wrote that poem. It was kind of like for me. So I, I was hearing it and reading it, and then... Well, the first things that came out of my mouth were, thank you for seeing me. I mean, it was just a sense of caring for really seeing who I am. And she wasn't talking about these great qualities that I have or might have, but she was, she was just talking about my simple humanness, you know, of how I can express just the pain I could feel in life sometimes. And so on the receiver side, it's a component of that quest to be in the proximity of another that we know we have the protection of. We know that they understand us, they really see us for who we are. And also they want to soothe us. 
They don't want to, you know, to make trouble or be cruel to us. They really want to soothe us in our times of need. So, of course, when this happens, we feel that open-hearted flow of positive energy. You know, it's flowing towards us and it circulates back and then it not only circulates to them, but then we might be able to feel it for others in our lives that we're not able to feel it with because it's coming to us and we see it's possible for others to do that, then we can um, put it forth ourselves and then we find that we're putting it forth towards people that we might not put it forth because maybe they're not being so nice uh, to others or to ourselves. But actually because of that, we, we see the harm that they're doing to others or to themselves, we feel more compassion. And so that's a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of wisdom to be able to see that. So there's this open-hearted flow of positive energy within ourselves towards others and this unhesitating courage to allow it to go out to people maybe we don't know, strangers, because everyone's suffering in one way or another. And to be with what's hard to bear, feeling the strength of heart in that bonding, so we can feel strong in, in that bonding, to be with what's really hard to bear. I know in hard times of my own life, it's easier to bear when there are people around me who understand not just one side, but both all sides of, of what's being presented. In, like, for example, the, the perpetrators of violence that have happened in, in the last um, weeks in Orlando. I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, pain that we feel in connection with their families and those people who have been harmed, hurt, or killed, right? I mean, that's the truth of what we're living with today. When our hearts can really be open, we can see that, wow, the perpetrator of that violence, how much confusion that must have come from. What was their life like when they were growing up? I mean, what kind of heart mind did that person have? And gradually our heart opens to like, that person deserves some kind of care. If that person got the care that we would give, the care for others that we feel um, are good people, you know, if that person got that care, would that person would have done that? So I'm not condoning what that person did. I think that was a very violent act, but it's just to show how far compassion could go, and I'm not there yet myself, but I do feel that sometimes for, for people, for perpetrators of hurt and violence in different ways, different levels. So we can feel a sense of true integration in ourselves. Really the integration, it takes wisdom to see that, to see that that person's hurting too. Where did their life come from? So it's a real integration of wisdom and compassion, well, that makes the charity come out from that. So we feel a sense of true wholeness and kind of a non-religious sacredness. It's a sacredness of feeling like you can be, you've got so much strength in you from your being connected to others who connect to you. You feel that kind of bond. Our sanghas are like that, you know, the, the places that we feel that we can go to and be, be really quiet within and depend on that quietness that's protecting us outside of us, people who care about a feeling of safety and quietness around us and really protect that. And then we can feel like we can be like maybe a, a, a thunderstorm or a, or a big rainstorm um, and um, even though it could be dangerous, we find a place of safety and we can, we can see that storm, be in that storm, in a place of safety and really feel the wonder of that, the beauty of that, the strength of that, and yet we can be there. It's sort of like being in nature and being 
really have confidence in ourselves that we know how to be in nature, in the nature of our hearts, in the nature of this world. Because we can face not just what is unpleasant, what is painful, uh, but we can also open to the joy of life. It said, I think uh, maybe, Bonnie mentioned this afternoon, how when she talked about compassion, how when we really feel compassion, there's a sense of relaxation and ease in our hearts and our minds. And in that relaxation and ease, we're more liable to open to some joy, to some kind of that fleeting happiness that's so precious to be in touch with, as fleeting as it is. So we can also face the pain of life with a deep care. Facing the pain is just part of it. It's just the first connection. But the second most important part of it is you face it with deep care for all of life. So we feel the strength and the ability to face this vulnerability. The ability to be vulnerable. This vulnerability. So it takes a special kind of strength to do that. And that's the strength of compassion. So in some ways, uh, compassion makes us feel complete. It's kind of mysterious how it can feel, make us feel complete. The strength to feel what's hard to face, what's hard to bear in ourselves. And really being able to bear with, to bear with what's going on. And so, um, a lot of times, maybe I mentioned this already, is uh, in my practice when I've gone to one of my teachers and say, said, this is hard, you know, what quality could I bring up now? What's going to be important now? And usually there's a quality of the compassion that's mentioned, but also the quality of endurance. Can you just endure this for this period of time? So I would ask, well, what do I, what am I noting then? Because I'm a noter, you know, that silent mental notation. And the, the answer would be enduring, enduring. Because that is the quality of the mind in that moment. It stays open, it stays connected, and there's some level of care, even as little as there might be, but there's some level of care to that connection. And that's enduring. Just bearing with. Or we might say, um, in some circles, we might say it's bearing witness to. But the witness is awareness. So it's not just closing down to parts of ourselves or avoiding it like we might, because it is hard. Life is really hard. So we want to avoid, we want to distract ourselves, we want to go to places like our imagination, that give us a respite. And so we might still do that and give gives us a little respite from the hardships that we're facing internally. But we have to wake up to that too. And we have to bring a sense of compassion to that place also. You know, that wants to leave, that wants to abandon, abandon us in some way, abandon the present moment. So one time I asked Manindraji, my first teacher, um, what, what is the purpose of my life? Anyway, I, mean, I was raising children. They were all young. I was a single parent. And um, I, I, you know, I was just in survival mode, trying to get the food on the table, trying to work and get everything together and make sure they got off to school and all those things you all know about whether you're parents or not because we were all children at least we know that you know <laughs> so we know that's what happened in the best way possible for us that our parents knew how to do so when i asked him that question what's the purpose of my life he said very just outright very clearly it's to develop compassion and wisdom that's your purpose in life and so are, are we having that balance? You know, it's a big question for us. Are we having that balance? Are, are we just here to understand things intellectually and then 
just to kind of agree when somebody says, oh, yeah, that's really good. And we can kind of just agree with it and go away thinking that that's our practice. You know, we just, that was, that person is so great, can say, you know, these great things. But, you know, can, the question is, can we really hold that understanding in our own hearts? It's not just agreeing or reading it and then being able to spout it out to others, but can we really walk our talk? And that's what we're, we're all here for. I mean, we're all want, wanting to do that because we're here. So this gives us meaning and purpose to our lives, and it's no wonder that these qualities of this open-hearted strength of courage and wisdom is, is a feeling of holistic completeness that in the Dharma is called inner wealth. So compassion is one of those feelings of completeness that is this sense, this force of inner wealth that no one can take away from us, no matter what people think of us or what we think of ourselves. If we can really tune into that part of ourselves, we would really see the great inner wealth that we have. It's because of compassion that the Buddha uh, made all these precepts, you know, out of compassion that there's these precepts of non-harming. And the extra three, the numbers six, seven, and eight, are precepts of renunciation, which also help us to develop non-attachment. So uh, people ask sometimes, why isn't compassion in the ten paramis? The paramis are those qualities of heart and mind that kind of carry us to the, um, that deep, unconditional peace and happiness. And why isn't compassion there? And it's said that compassion isn't one of those ten because it's because of compassion that the Buddha thought of those ten. It's actually because of compassion that the Buddha gave the teachings. Because when he he became enlightened, it's said that he thought that no one would really understand what, uh, what these teachings, how these teachings could transform one how he could put it out in words. Um, But actually, someone from a celestial realm came, it said. I don't know for sure. I just, you know, these could be mythical stories, but they're all based on some kind of truth. Maybe it was just a thought that came to him. But some kind of being came to him from a celestial realm and said, there are beings with but little dust in their eyes, and they will be able to hear the Dharma, and to be released from the ways that cause suffering and go into some deep peace in their own hearts. And it was out of compassion that the Buddha started to teach. So it's because we're riding on this this current, this river of compassion that the Buddha laid out for us, <coughs> through compassion laid this out for us. And it's uh, because of this that we're taking it in and we're integrating it, we're interjecting it into our own hearts and minds to be able to live it. So this inner wealth is not something that anyone can take away from us. We can lose our physical and material possessions, but not these inner strengths. They can be carried on um, from one consciousness to the next. And in this very life, you know, we can... um, that can purify our hearts and minds. It can be one of the causes of purification when we open to the difficulties that are coming out of our own hearts and minds. So it's really important to understand the significance and the great power of compassion in our lives. This is a poem which is untitled by Donna Markova. And, you know, in the end... um, you don't, you don't have to write your notes to ask for these poems. We're going we're gonna to try to put their titles so you can look them up yourselves uh, uh, afterwards. And you can Google any of this. I Googled this. So. so here it is by Donna Markova. She says, I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. 
I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes on as fruit. And then, of course, that fruit bears seeds, and it goes on and on. So from one life to another is this inner wealth that we can bring. So in the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, uh, the Buddha laid out the Four Noble Truths. And I want to connect this now to the real wisdom part of this integration of compassion and wisdom. And he started with the reality of what we're all faced with as human beings. Now some people say that the the Buddha was a pessimist because of the first noble truth, and I want to explain that a little more. Really, the Buddha was a realist because he opened to, he faced the way life is, and he started out with, this is how it is. That's where he started out. And when he said, this is how it is, the first noble truth is dukkha sacha. Dukkha means uh, suffering, and it, it means really all kinds of suffering. Actually, if you look dukkha up in a Pali English dictionary, there's about four pages of tiny, tiny print <laughs> explaining dukkha. You know, I'll explain it sort of um, in five simple examples, but the first part of the first noble truth is dukkha, and the second part is sacha, and sacha means truth. So the first noble truth is there is the truth of pain. There is the truth of vulnerability because things are always changing and that's why we have pain because we're trying to hang on to it not changing basically when it's, um, when it's pleasant. We want things to be nice all the time, but they aren't. You know, life is vulnerable. So that first noble truth is saying it like it is. Actually, when I heard the first noble truth, I, I was raised a Catholic and I still have a lot of um, uh, respect for, my, for what I learned there. And I still have a lot of respect for the Catholic Church and you know, different aspects of it. But when I heard the Dhamma, when I heard this first noble truth, right away I thought, I'm in the right place. Because what the Buddha started with is where I'm starting And that's the truth of how my life is. And somebody saw my truth. And it was like I I was really seen, it felt like, instead of like I had to be like, you know, um, Mother Mary or something, which I wish I could be too. But, you know, the purity of her, of that heart. But I'm not starting out that way. And so Dukkha Sacha meant a lot to me. And the second noble truth was there is a cause for that suffering, which is craving, clinging. And uh, that made a lot of sense to me. I wanted to know better, wanted to know more fully, but it made a lot of sense to me that it did. And that the third noble truth was probably the most important part of these four noble truths at that time, and still is to me, that there is an end. There can be an end. To this pain, and I still believe in that. You know, even though there there still is pain and, and difficulty in life, in my life and other people's lives, but the relationship to it is something different. There's more compassion and wisdom towards that. Where when I looked many years ago, there wasn't. There was just a lot of confusion about all that. And the fourth noble truth is there is a path to the end of suffering. And that path is the Eightfold Noble Path, which um, I hope that we can get to in this retreat, in, in a Dharma talk. So there's no, when you look at all of those, there's no denial about the, the first one. And, uh, you know, a lot of times our practice, 
on this path is just getting over our denial of how we think it should all be perfect all the time. And it's not. I mean, just take the, the whole heating and, and cooling system, <laughs> for example. <laughs> it's not going to be perfect, friends. <laughs> it's going to be hot sometimes. It's going to be cold. And we can't control it. I mean, we don't even know how to turn the dang thing off. <laughs> so it's just the way it is. <laughs> so those of us who have been here, like, you know, like in, in Hawaii, we call it before time, like <laughs> long ago. Um, we sat in this room with like, there was no air conditioners. Like we had to roast in this room. So um, we just have to bear with sometimes. But hopefully, I mean, we're doing a better job of, you know, moderating what's going on in here. So throughout his life, he taught that the quality of compassion, the Buddha taught that is that a quality that greatly supports us. It's the one thing, if you took any of the qualities and you just applied it to your everyday life, that could be a quality which would really help transform how your practice is. Just bringing that care to the first noble truth that you're facing every day, we're all facing every day. So it's such a vitally important role that... um, he, he talks about it a lot in, in just, and he acts it out in his, in, you could see the, the uh, behavior that the Buddha had in his life. I mean, he really offered the Dhamma for 40 years until the very do- day he died. He made tremendous sacrifices to be able to leave his family and to really understand the truth and come back to his family and transform them into fully enlightened beings. I mean, sometimes there's, you know, uh, not so nice things said about the Buddha because he did that. But look what he did afterwards. I mean, I would have liked to have been one of his daughters that he came back to and gotten full enlightenment from because of the teachings that were given. So I can see it a little differently. This is from Khalil Gibran. And it's about how um, compassion can open us to wisdom. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding, even as a stone of the fruit must break open that its heart may stand in the sun. So you must know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So, may that be so, you know, when we're feeling whatever we're feeling, can it be kind of on an equal plane to like when we're seeing the leaves flutter in the light? Can we see the awesomeness of that? but being able to face that inside of ourselves. So because we live in this electronic age and the frequency and intensity of seeing and hearing and knowing what's happening globally so quickly and affects us so steadily, we really need to have compassion more. I mean, and it really um, behooves us to do that because when we do have compassion, then we can take one little step towards making the earth a better place uh, for all of us to live. And I, I really notice how the shifting and changing planet and the melting icebergs and glaciers affect the waters of the world and the currents of the world. Living in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and with a lot of Pacific Islanders, I tuned in to um, when they had the meetings in Paris about uh, global... about climate change and um, there there was a, at that time I tuned into the Pacific Islanders and what they were going through because of the waters rising and so there, they showed little videos of communities that were once on the water's edge that had to move up and you know maybe thousand two thousand foot level of, 
a mountain that could have been there, or just on higher ground or just closer inland because whole communities have to shift. And we're not so connected to that, but um, lots of people have to change and, and do things differently because of this climate change. And so how are we taking care of our earth this way? What, what can we do to, to make it a better place? The heartbreak of how all this affects human beings and creatures on earth is really something. I mean, because I live with a lot of Pacific Islanders, I hear the stories of their relatives tell me who's living in, in another place, another you know, forsaken island that we don't even hear about in the South Pacific or the Pacific, that their own relatives, they're finding a way for them to come to Hawaii to live with them or something like that. So it's close to me. So then, of course, the worldwide social, political, tribal, religious wars that are happening and the cultural, gender, racial, economic inequities and disparities that are so gravely unfair. So, of course, last and not least are the emotional tsunamis that we bring to our sitting cushions and that this is the truth of how it is. People come here and, and if this is your, one of your first retreats, you might be having this experience that you think, oh, we're, we're going to go to a retreat and get away from it all, right? Well, no, it's really in our face. It's really, it's really so, um, so indescribably clear, much clearer than it ever was before uh, when we're not so distracted. And this is, this is actually what needs to happen. We might be in this peaceful environment here, but if I put a screen up behind all of your heads, which you wouldn't want me to do, it would be like worse than Grand Central Station. Um, but that's the way it is. I say that with you know a little bit of um, you know laughter, but it's it's also with compassion that it's that way. So usually it's thought about in terms of helping others and facing their struggles, but. Um, what about here? What about including to start opening and touching the truth of suffering in our own hearts and minds? So that's what, when we turn to that, when we're feeling those tsunamis of our lives come on the sitting cushion so clearly and boldly to us, that's when it's calling out for our empathy. That empathy is the first step. His Holiness said, until you understand the meaning of suffering, through your own experience, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. So until we really understand it for ourselves, it's so hard to give it to others because we we don't understand that we ourselves are, say, the perpetrators of it or that we also can feel loss in the same way another person can um, in our unique ways, but loss, pain in the body, hunger, illness, pain in the mind and heart, sadness, hatred, jealousy, holding tightly to opinions, resentment. It's all really hard. The fickleness and the uncontrollability of the mind. It's just so hard. I mean, one of the ways that in Hawaii we we have a sense of compassion from one another when we go to the Hawaiian elders and we say to them, you know, we just call each other, we call them our uncles and aunties all the time. No matter, you know, where we're from, or we could be from um, Japan or China or the Philippines or Samoa or Fiji or um, there are a lot of Maoris there too from New Zealand. It's like everyone's our uncle or auntie. In fact, I am so poor at political correctness because we have absolutely no political correctness in Hawaii. It's like everybody kids everybody else's culture and even even gender. You know, it's it's like everybody is just embracing everybody else. And so we come to one another and we say, Auntie, I'm having a hard time and this is what's happening. And they say, Oh, it's hard, yeah. And that's it. You know, and this, you feel their total compassion. And they just say, it's hard, yeah. 
And it just comes from that, just the salt of the earth person. And they don't have to say, you know, like, I had to look up all these different facts to tell you. But, but I feel compassion too. When I, when I hear that, and it's like you're really seen. You're really seen that it's hard. Life is hard to live with. But it, you don't just go there with it. You, you put forth that care in your words and in your actions when you can, towards other beings, towards the earth. What can we do to help? So compassion grows for others because we know it is for ourselves in that same way. So I I, um, heard this poem in, in one of my yoga classes, and it really struck me, this poem by Wendell Berry, because it was, it was like, you know, like poets do, they, it's like they say something and you really feel like your life is being acknowledged. And uh, not just because you're you and this unique things are happening, but that your life as a human being is being acknowledged. So this is by Wendell Berry, and he's, he's describing a tree, uh, the sycamore tree. In the place that is my own, whose earth I am shaped in and must bear, there is an old tree growing, a great sycamore that is a wondrous healer of itself. Fences have been tied to it, nails driven to it, hacks and whittles cut in it. The lightning has burned it. There is no year it has flourished in, that has not harmed it. There is a hollow in it that is its death, though its living brims whitely at the lip of darkness and flows outward. Over all its scars has come the seamless white of the bark. It bears the gnarls of its history healed over. It has risen to a strange perfection in the warp and bending of its long growth. It has gathered all accidents into its purpose. It has become the intention and radiance of its fate. It is, in fact, sublime, mystical, and unassailable. In all the country there is no other like it. I recognize in it a principle, an indwelling, the same as itself and greater that I would be ruled by. I see that it stands in its place and feeds upon that principle and is fed upon also and is native and maker. So as we become more connected to the truth of this, and to the majesty of this as well, you know, to the ability to overcome the dukkha, the pain of our lives, that third noble truth, and not succumb to the hopelessness of life, that compassion, what we call compassion <coughs> fatigue. You know, when we need time to rest and gather up those forces of like being able to face and to bear with, to bear witness to with awareness and keep going. So we see with honesty the elements of fear and anger and attachments to our own tightly held yet perhaps untrue viewpoints of ourselves and others. Confusion, judging, helplessness, guilt, resentment, blame. So right there we need to remember not to bring only awareness but to incline the tender-hearted compassion that can accompany that awareness. It said that, um, you know, what one beautiful quality of heart and mind is there, there's, in the Abhidhamma, it said the, the Buddhist psychology, there's either 24 or 26, I forget what the number is, beautiful qualities of heart and mind. Awareness is one of them, which is mindfulness, so is compassion. And it said that even if one of those exists, even like loving-kindness, like forbearance is another one. All of the paramis are there. 
Even if one of them is there, the other ones are nearby. So you, because like attracts like, you know the the likeness of the quality of that of of that virtuous um, quality in in a human being. So to remember to bring awareness and to incline the mind towards compassion that can accompany that awareness. So maybe you just say, as you uh, practice compassion this afternoon, you can just say to yourself, can I just be more tender with myself here? Sometimes just say to yourself, gentle, gentle. I'm remembering once just now that I was going down, I was driving the youngest daughter, my youngest daughter, down to school, and um, and there was traffic, and so I was grumbling in in the traffic. And she's she had gone to um, two young adults courses at IMS Insight Meditation Society already. She was probably about 14, and of course she she. You know, they say, ask a 14-year-old because they know everything. Right? <laughs> so so she, was, she was saying, Mom, don't grumble. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do then? You know, <laughs> I was really still grumbling. And she said, Mom, silent, gentle note. <laughs> grumbling. Grumbling, you know. Well, that's what she had learned. So, you know, it comes back, right? (laughs) Luckily, those good things come back. So it's like trying to bring that sense to yourself. May I be open with gentleness to this moment. May I open to gentleness, with gentleness to this moment. So we're all learning how, how to do that here. This one is from Mark Nepple, the poet and writer who went through his own deep health challenges and um, also his personal heart challenges. And he journaled through this and wrote so many poems and beautiful words that he put together. And this was part of something that he wrote that I want to pass on to you. He said, Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So it's turning in all of those, that hardship into pearls of wisdom. So there's that, there's that suffering, there's that compassion, there's that wisdom, all in this one piece. Irritations that rub to a pearl. So, compassion is our ability to face this first noble truth. And they say that without compassion, we really can't start our journey. Because our journey starts when the Buddha gave his first sermon, he started with the first noble truth. But you need compassion as a prerequisite because you have to have compassion to face that noble truth. Otherwise, you're just resisting it, fighting it, thinking that it should be different, or the world should change around me so that I can be more comfortable. And it's really what we have to change within. Our relationship to the world has to change. So, again, I have to say... You know, my path isn't finished. I'm still working on it. But I believe in it. That's why I have so much passion when I say it. It's not because I'm there. It's just that I really believe in it. So when the Buddha expounded on the First Noble Truth, he mentioned these are the hallmarks of our basic vulnerability as human beings. So this is part of that understanding of the First Noble Truth, that uh, these are the, the these are the hallmarks of this uh, suffering. Birth. Birth is suffering. So you know, usually a baby doesn't come out smiling. <laughs> I mean, it does happen once in a while. Actually, I hear about it, but none of my babies did. Birthing um, 
is hard. I mean, a lot of us have had trauma in birth and even before birth, right? There's knowledge of that psychologically and still working with that, some people. It's hard. But I want to say too that Buddha didn't say this, but I want to say this. Birthing is hard. (laughs) You know, giving birth to children, it's really, really painful. But it's not painful in the heart. It's painful of the body. So the process of what a mother goes through, um, you know, this is, Manindra would say this, because he, he upheld all mothers all the time. He actually called me mom, Manindraji. So first is birth. This is one of the hallmarks of suffering. Then is aging, and then is sickness. So birth, aging, sickness, and death, including the dying process. This is all suffering. Mm. So what is the cause of suffering? Uh, Actually, you know, when you go back to further and further back, it's birth from not just this life, but way back when. One of the causes. So being with those we don't like, suffering. Being separated from those we love by death or other ways, this is suffering. Wanting to have and keep what is pleasant but goes away, this is suffering. Running away or avoiding what's unpleasant but remains or returns, this is suffering too. So our inner responses to those outer conditions and those inner conditions, that's a lot of suffering. And um, this is what we're learning how to be aware so that we're not lost in the suffering, but that there's an ability to bear with, you know, that moment of awareness can bear with what's happening. It, It can come back again, and then another moment of awareness can bear with it until that awareness can be stronger than what it's facing. Because it brings with us other things like equanimity and wisdom. So, like Carl Jung said, self-knowledge is not always good news. You know, it's it's hard to get that. Uh, It's hard to get that. I think I said Carl Jung, but I meant Mark Twain. It was Mark Twain, yes. Yeah. So can we give ourselves that care and um, not be harsh with ourselves? So I read a lot of poems by famous people and say a lot of things, uh, quotes from famous people. But this one actually came from a tea box um, the Celestial Seasoning Tea Box, and I thought it was really nicely said. And it's about um, just letting ourselves unfold gently, like it said, flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven, but unfold in its own perfect timing to reveal its true wonder and beauty. So, a couple of things, a couple of more um, notations to make is regarding the the whole uh, kind of territory around compassion. When compassion falls into what they call the near enemy, like we, we might be, compassion is one of the, what you call the middle path, it's right in the middle, but on one side can be the near enemy, which is almost like compassion, um, and it's uh, called the kind of, in, it, it can seem like compassion, but it's because it's um, kind of the heart's open, but it's so open that it's drowning in grief, in its own grief. It's kind of uh, having an unhealthy grief for oneself, which is pity, or grief for another. So you can't, you can't really stand on firm ground and help anybody. In fact, one of, the, um, one of the ways that it's given as an example in the ancient scriptures is that, say somebody's fallen into quicksand 
and they're, they're kind of being sucked under. And instead of standing on the side on firm ground and finding something to reach out to them and even give your hand and say, hold on and I'll help you get back on firm ground, you jump in with them. So that's, that's the near enemy, pity or grief, when you just you get so involved with that person that you fall into the same pattern with that person and cannot even help anymore. So this is not being effective in our lives. And the, the opposite of that, the direct opposite of compassion is cruelty, is when you see someone um, that's hurt and you actually push them away or you strike out at them or you give words of um, dismissal. Uh, you, you turn away. You abandon them in some way. You, do, you abandon their, their feeling of hurt because you can't maybe take it yourself. You know, something hard, hard in yourself is usually the case. So attitudes like that might be anger, ill will, shaming, retaliation, passive aggressiveness. These are all ways that the far enemy of cruelty can show up. So it's, it's part of the territory sometimes. You know, we feel that something's really hard to bear and we want to strike out at it because we don't want to hear it. We, don't, we want it to go away. We don't want to face it. And, and sometimes we fall into too much grief. So just know those moments when it goes from one side to another. So also I want to include here some words about how compassion can be fierce and not necessarily filled with hatred or done with cruelty, but you can say something strongly and really mean it. So it might start out as anger, like you, you feel really righteously angry about something happening in the world. This, this is a human feeling that we all feel, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, you know, just kind of letting it take its place and um, settle down. And then maybe the energy from that anger can remain. And with that energy, you can say something really strong. Like in the Tibetan tradition, there is this sword of Manjushri. You know, Manjushri is, has a sword of wisdom that just really cuts through all the, you know, fill in the blank. It just cuts through all that and says, no, this is not going to happen anymore. I mean, even though it still happens, somebody has to say no. And maybe at a, at a certain time, you know, it's, we say it enough times that there might be some level of equality or level of understanding about things that people don't understand or the cruelty that's being um, perpetrated all around. But we still have to stand up and say no. I mean, I... You know, if you're a Dharma teacher, you have to have a therapist. So, <laughs> so I have a therapist. And she says to me, um, she said to me one time that it's really important that you stand up for yourself, even though that other person doesn't take it or understand it. You know, when you're having uh, difficulty in, in, you know, with one of your children or your family member or something like that. It's really important that you stand up for yourself as a human being because um, otherwise it's just you're not giving yourself that agency you know, to say what you know is right. I mean, you have to, you have to give it some time and think about it and make the right, have the right words come out of your mouth and have it be the right time. And, you know, um, one of the qualities of the Buddha is that he said what was beneficial, but he didn't say what was always going to be harmonious to that person. That it was important, and even my own teachers have told me, if you want to give the Dharma, you have to be able to admonish. You have to be able to say, no, that isn't right. You know, that uh, look at it another way. So I remember one of my friends, actually she's a translator for the local lama in our town. And um, uh, she says, because we always take on too much work, she does and I do, and she reminds me, Kamala, remember that no is a complete sentence. (laughs) I keep trying to remember that, but I don't always remember it. 
And so um, it can be fierceness when you say it, like Martin Luther King, you know, in paraphrasing him. He said no to violence. He said no to inequality. He said no to racism and discrimination of any kind. And he didn't make any bones about it. And so, I mean, we have to do this in ways that, you know, we don't get, you know, shot down. But we we really have to stand up for the places that we really believe in and do it in a way that's, that has the right words at the right time. And it may, be, it may be a lot of energy behind it. It may sound fierce, but it's not with anger. It's with compassion. I mean, it's like your children when they run across the street and the, car, and the truck is coming. You don't say, oh, please come back. You, know? <laughs> you just you yell at the top of your lungs and say, get over here. Or you go out and grab them. So, Green Tara, perfect example, Tibetan deity, quivering of the heart at the sign of suffering. She's got her right leg ready to move. You know, the other Tara, some are standing, some are doing dancing, some are other things, but white Tara and some of the others are sitting in posture, in repose. But the green Tara's got her right leg out and she's like ready to go. So it's that movement of you're ready to help with your, with your kind words. Or maybe it's a, it's a strong no. Making your boundary, for example. It's very noble to do that. So we granted we may not radically change the world, but in fact transforming our own hearts is a real possibility. And it sends ripples of harmony out into the world and of possibility out into the world. And as His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And that's where we can make it happen. So I'd just like to end with this um, beautiful poem by Jennifer Payne Wellwood. And I'll put those uh, up at the board, the names. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning my face to fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. So that's the integration of compassion and wisdom. Wow, those are a lot of sadhu. <laughs> that was really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.